All right, I'm going to begin our Bible class. My name is Ken Forrest. I preach for the Boonville Church of Christ in Boonville, Mississippi. Glad to have you be a part of our study. For those who are members here, well, we were expecting you to be a part of it, but I know there are some folks from all over the place who tune in and participate with us, and I just want you to know you're very welcome. However, we're going to start with some names of some folks that I'm going to be praying about here in a few minutes. Sometimes names don't get in the bulletin. Something happens between uh, those occasions, and we want to keep you up to, up to date about those who are sick. So here are a few of those. Irene Baker, who is Melinda Hester's mother, she's, she's very seriously sick with cancer. She's in a lot of pain. Let's be praying for her pain relief. Joanne Roberts is recovering from knee surgery, and we're praying that she'll get function back in those legs and be back with us here as soon as possible. Martha Tyra had a heart stint within the last few days, but she is now at home and doing very well. Dorothy Hester had a pacemaker put in the other day, and she is also at home in recovery. Denise Martin's mother has COVID-19, and she is very seriously ill with that. And Lisa Hodgen has contracted COVID-19, in addition to a few who came back from camp, and maybe some others don't even know about. I know the pounds have been affected by it, and maybe you're sitting at home thinking, wait a minute, why didn't they mention my name? Well, there are a lot of people who are affected by that, and I just want to kind of give you an update of those that we found out about recently. We're going to be conducting a Bible class here, the, the best that we can under these circumstances. But before we do that, let's, let's pray together, and we'll be praying about these folks and their recovery, okay? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the blessing of today and for the extension of our lives, and for the degree of health that we enjoy right now. And Lord, we're aware of those who are sick, and we have a long list of people that we're concerned about, we've been praying about. But here are some names of people that we've just become aware of, and we're praying for your blessings on them. We pray, Lord, that you'll be with Irene Baker, uh, Melinda Hester's mother, and we pray, Father, that you'll, you'll give her strength as she's dealing with this cancer and the pain that she's been experiencing. Pray for Joanne Roberts as she's recovering from her knee surgery, that she'll retain full use of her knee. We pray for Martha Tyra as she's had this heart stint, and we are thankful that it went well, and we pray a full recovery for her. Please be with Dorothy Hester as she recovers from the surgery to implant the pacemaker. We pray that it will give the remedy that she's seeking. Bless Denise Martin's mother as she is very sick right now with COVID and with Lisa Hodgen and so many others. Our, our entire state, even this entire region of the country just seems to be enduring a spike of that right now. We're praying your blessings on those affected, and especially uh, we pray for our children who seem to be more heavily affected by it. We pray for their recovery, 
and that things will go well. And bless this church, Lord, as we're just navigating through a time and circumstance that's unfamiliar to us. I pray for our leaders that they'll make wise decisions that will benefit the congregation, uh, certainly health-wise, but spiritually as well, too, Lord. We're a body. We want to function as a body, so help our leaders be able to come up with uh, good and maybe even some innovative ways to retain that oneness while still doing our very best to be respectful of the virus to make choices that will help our membership to get through this and that we can enjoy better days in the future. We pray, Lord, also your blessing on our time of study that it will be a benefit to all of us. Help us be good stewards, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, last week I introduced what's going to be a new series of studies for us here in the auditorium class on Wednesday nights. We're going to be looking at stewardship and giving. Oftentimes when you hear the word stewardship, you just automatically think of giving. But there's very much more involved in the whole biblical notion of stewardship, which I think once, once we get a handle on what that is, well... That whole matter of giving, which seems to be kind of a, a negative subject for some people. I think once we understand stewardship, giving will just be something that comes naturally to us. And, and we'll want to be uh, very good givers in the Lord's church. We started with a text, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We were challenged with the idea of stewardship itself. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, he says, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, if you looked at that text within its context, you, you probably see pretty quickly the initial context suggests he's talking about Paul and Apollos and their work as apostles and that in comparison to kind of the, the divisiveness that was being experienced in the Corinthian church that Paul and Apollos could stand up. Hey, now don't, don't miss this. Most people see us this way. We're servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And you know, we're supposed to be faithful in that work. But you realize as much as I do that any cursory examination of scripture is going to reveal that not only was stewardship a matter of the Apostle Paul and Apollos in their various works, but we follow in suit. And that is that God has made some tremendous investments in us. And so all of us are accountable in that way as stewards. And by virtue of that fact, well, just like the text said in verse 2, we've got to be faithful in that responsibility. Now, God has placed a lot of things in our hands. He's given us a calling. Uh, he has given us lots of opportunities and knowledge and abilities and resources and, and every blessing that you can think of. The source of those blessings is the Lord himself. Now, as God has blessed us with those things, we need to come to the realization that, okay, yeah, we are possessors of the things that God puts in our hands. 
But we are not the owners of those things. We take possession of someone else's things. We use them. We maybe will even expend them in our service. But keep in mind that the original owner is the Lord. And since he's our master, we're the servant, since he's the owner of those things, he is in great expectation that we're going to use them in the right way. And ultimately, we're going to use the things that God puts in our hands to his honor and to his glory. So last week, we started a study of what I, I thought was a natural progression. For instance, you are a steward and then you have these commitments that come into your hands, those things that we noted, okay? You have these commitments, and then I got all these commitments. I, I've got to prioritize those things in the right order. So we started down a list of things that typically, now not everybody's going to be involved in every one of these things, but typically through a lifetime, you and I, as stewards of God, we're going to have to prioritize some very common commitments. And the Bible really kind of lays out exactly what God's expecting of us in those commitments. Now, I, I talked to you about these commitments in, well, can I get that advanced? This don't seem to be working. But anyway, I talked about those um, different types of stewardship, broke them down into five different categories. We talked about the steward's commitment that he makes to his God, the commitment that he makes to his spouse, the commitment that he makes to his children, to his vocation, and ultimately to his good works. So when I was thinking about those and breaking them down, I wanted to divide them into three different kind of step down phases, if you will. So you deal with each topic and then you break it down. What I wanted to start with was looking at, at the big picture. And then we take it from the big picture down to some details. We want to manage our details. And then ultimately we ask the question, okay, wh why is this so important? And I likened it to kind of sealing the, the cracks. So I know it's important, I read it in the scriptures, but you know, about me, why is it important to me? And then we looked at a couple of scriptures that emphasized exactly why that's true. We started with the servant and his commitment to his God. And you remember, you and I, we went to Psalm number eight, and we saw how God had, you know, God's in the position of ultimate authority, but that he vested responsibility, stewardship, oversight of his creation in the hands of, of men. Everything that God had created in terms of the earth, man who's been made a little lower than the angels, but he's been crowned with glory and honor. He's been given authority, responsibility. Uh, the Old Testament scripture refers to it as dominion over the earth. But a problem arose. And so even though we see the big picture of responsibility, we know that sin came into the world. And so then we had to start thinking about how we manage the details. I, want, I still want to be a steward who's committed to God, but I see, well, there's been a sidestep here. So we looked back at the beginning, see what the problem was. And we got to the root of it, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. 
that as pertained to the fruit that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat, Eve starts looking at it. And she saw that the fruit was good for food, was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. So you know the story. She took of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, and she also gave to her husband Adam, and he ate resultant sin. They die. They're escorted out of the garden. Sin enters into the world. The big story of mankind. But the story doesn't end there because every life, every life subsequent to that moment is affected by sin too. And when you get to the New Testament scriptures, even though we have, you know, the shedding of the blood of Jesus and the hope for all humanity that's wrapped up in that, still sin rears its ugly head. And we are still into this time managing the details, the fallout of the original failure. John reminds us of that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. He said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, love of the Father is not in. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world's passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so we manage the details, got sin, problems separated from God. Now we can eschew the evil, turn away from the world, hold on to God, have eternal life. Yay! But why is all that important? Why is it that, why is it that I have to, as a steward, make a commitment even now to God? Why is it I have to make this choice? Well, Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 24. And he makes it about as plain and simple as it can possibly be. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and be loyal to the other. No, you can, no one can serve God and mammon. Now mammon is an Aramaic word for riches. You can't serve God and riches at the same time. God isn't going to accept a divided loyalty. Certainly not within this context, certainly not going to accept a divided loyalty of a steward of his. If you're going to be a true steward of the Lord, then you're going to make a commitment to the Lord and you are not making your commitment to worldly things. You have made a decision. I'm going to serve God. Okay, now, on the basis of those breakdowns, not only did we see this commitment that we're making to God, but the second thing that we emphasized was the commitment that we're making, well, probably to the closest relationship we're ever going to have on earth. And that is the steward making his commitment to his spouse. Now, there's a big picture, and I took you just to one verse of Scripture. You remember that one? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. It's actually the summation statement of quite a lot to be said about the relationship between the husband and wife, Christ and his church. He said in verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I guess one of the underlying themes throughout this whole consideration of stewardship is the idea of recognizing the authority that is over us. 
In terms of God, there was no question about that. God is the authority. But even in our relationships in life, there is a recognized authority in that relationship. And so here in this text, we see some comparisons being made. Yes, uh, there, there is the relationship that exists between the husband and the wife, and there's a great deal of equality in that. But God has also set the husband as the head over the wife in that relationship. Now in this text, the big picture, wife, respect, that's the show of the recognition of his authority. You respect the husband. The husband, you make sure that you love the wife. Now, looking at the big picture, there are always lots of questions. And in this context, well, he really had already answered all the questions, beginning back at verse 22. And you and I, we read that text together, and we saw that the wife is subject to the husband. The husband definitely does love his wife, even so much so that he loves her like he loves himself. He loves her to the extent that he would give himself for her, just like Christ and the church's relationship. Christ loved the church so much that he died for her. He purchased her with his own blood. The church, in response to that, respects him as the head over her. Now you see that correlation. There are all the details. Yeah, Christ is the head of the church. Christ respects her too when she responds in obedience, when she respects his authority. The church then respects Christ as the head. When that relationship breaks down, that's, that's the division uh, that is described in so many places. Uh, that is the, the heresy that creeps into the church, the, the undermining of truth. You know, all that is good is then thrown out. And same thing happens in a marital relationship. When things get out of balance, when there is no respect and love, what happens? Well, that relationship deteriorates. It falls apart. So I see the, see the big picture. I see the details. They're just kind of laid out here in these several verses. But again, I ask the question, what, what difference? You know, why, why does that matter to me? Why is that important? Can you seal the cracks for me, so to speak? And, and I think we can because we also reviewed together 1 Peter chapter 3. Actually, when we looked at it, we were just looking at the first six verses because that pertains to a wife who is demonstrating holiness, not just the beauty on the outside, but the beauty that God is attracted to that's on the inside. And we see that when she maintains that holiness, that purity, that she can influence her husband even without a word. She influences him toward the things of God. That's the idea. Okay, we did not include verse 7, but it's just kind of a, a reflection of what had happened in the previous six verses. Because a husband, likewise, is to dwell with them, dwell with the wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. There's just something I want you to notice right there, that this husband, in response to his wife, is honoring her. One way that he honors her is the desire to know her better, to understand her better. Not, I don't know what is, a, what is a better description of the love of a husband 
than his awkward efforts to try to get to know his wife better so that that relationship will be better and that they can be heirs together of the grace of life. I just, I love the depiction there. And I think that answers the question, why it's so important for one who's a steward in a marital relationship to be committed to the spouse. Okay, so we're going to start something new. This will be the third installment in this examination. And that is a steward also is going to be committed to, well, let's say that in this marriage relationship in the home, they have children. If you are a steward of God, you are also a steward, an overseer of your children. Let's look at the big picture for a minute. There are several passages like this one. Psalm 127, verse 3, they're scattered through the Psalms and maybe lots of places through the scriptures when you talk about children, but primarily the Psalms. But I love the way that this one unfolds. It says that children are a heritage from the Lord. From the Lord. I love that. Children are a heritage. Well, that, that plays into what we're developing here. The idea of something that is in my possession, I oversee it, I'm responsible for it. A heritage is just a short form of talking about an inheritance. God says, your inheritance, it's your children. Wow, that's pretty heavy, right? Think about talking about big picture of, of how it's kind of encapsulated in Ephesians chapter six, beginning at verse one. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, the admonition of the Lord. Okay, how do those children know to obey their parents? You know, how do they know that if they obey them, that they're going to receive these blessings or these promises from the Lord? Well, I'm pretty sure that the way they're going to know that they are to obey their parents or that they're going to receive these blessings from God is that the parent, especially in this text, the father, takes responsibility, takes stewardship seriously, stewardship of his heritage, to see to it that they are trained up in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. What would be one of those outstanding teachings? Well, to obey your parents. And if you do, then you're going to receive these blessings from God. Hey, it's all kind of interwoven, right? But did you notice one thing that they're taught to do? To honor their father and their mother. Again, these little clues of the idea of the authority that is over the children. Who's that immediate authority? It's their parents. And when the child learns to recognize that outstanding authority, they learn how to recognize every authority that is around them. The first instance of the recognition of authority for a child comes in the home as they honor and they respect they obey their parents. Now, that's the big picture. 
we might ask the question, well, how did we ever get there, <laughs> right? I, yeah, I want to be that steward. I want to be the steward that trains his children right, and then they work out right. And, you know, I, I just want to see them do well. Well, always in my mind, I, I go back to kind of the, the beginning of the instruction of children in the things of God. And one passage that always comes to mind, and by the way, we're moving from the big picture now to managing those details. How do you do it? Is the book of Deuteronomy chapter six. And we're just gonna look at a handful of verses, verses seven, eight, and nine. Now, here's the context. You've had a, a restatement of the law of Moses. And really the book of Deuteronomy just has a, a, a whole combining of a lot of, if not all, of the laws that have been scattered out through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Okay, so Deuteronomy is just kind of a compilation of all of that stuff in a, in a little, little synopsis. Okay, so here's Deuteronomy, and we've got this restatement of the law, and you're going to get all of the associated laws and, and documents that go along with those Ten Commandments. But keeping in mind that the, the, the adults were to commit themselves to the keeping of that law. If they would commit themselves to that, then God would bless them. If they didn't keep it, God was going to curse them. It was that simple. But now parents, okay, we want to make sure that the future generation also knows these things. So this text tells the parents that they are to teach them those scriptures, those laws. Teach them diligently to your children. When you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, there'll be like signs on your hands and frontlets between your eyes. He said, write them on the doorposts of the house and the gates. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm realizing that the success of a parent in oversight of those children, developing a, a respect, an honor, a obedience of that parent, that, that took a lot of effort on the part of the parent working with that child from the very beginning. So as soon as they can begin to understand anything, they are constantly experiencing the law of God. When they sit in the house, when they walk around out by the way, when they, when they put their head down to lie down at night, when they wake up in the morning to rise up, it's, it's all over the house. It's all over the person, on the, on the hands, as, as those little phylacteries dangling from the top of their head, intertwined in their hair. Look at, the, look at the house. It's scattered through the house on the gates, even. God's Word was everywhere, and parents felt responsible to train their children. Why? Well, because we're stewards of our children. We have responsibility. We are overseeing the children. It's our responsibility to train them so that when we're gone, they will continue in it. So that they don't face curses, but can rather enjoy the blessings of God. Because we instructed them in the way of the Lord. Okay, that's great. 
train those children. That's, that's the detail of it. But we ask, as we've been asking in the others, so, you know, why is that important? Uh, let's seal some cracks here. Why, why would it be important for me, as a parent, to be involved with that child? Well, for those who were the ancients, you know, they could look at, I don't know, along comes a book of wisdom, like Proverbs. And Proverbs is really just stating, I think, or restating something that people knew all along. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Now you say, well, Ken, I know this or that situation. Peace. I, I know where you're going with it. Uh, not every faithful husband and wife who has children that you know of also have all their children faithful. Many, many families do, but not all of them. Or maybe a couple of the children in the family are faithful and one, he is rebellious. And, and you're like, how, how can that scripture be true? Well, first of all, it's a proverb. It's a general statement that is almost always true. And why would we think that's true? Well, we're reading it right here in the Bible. I know that this is by inspiration of God. So if I'll train up my child in the way he should go, I know when he's old, he'll not depart from it. He'll remember his early training. What is the, what is the active part of this? Well, that's, that's the early training part. So as a parent, I've got to be responsible, not just to one or two of my children, all my children, because I'm responsible for all of them. Now, there are going to be things in their lives that they face, and we're hoping that they'll face them as, a, as having been equipped all these years with the Word of God so that when they face those trials, they'll be able to overcome it. I know that there are unique circumstances that happen in a person's life where no matter how hard those parents tried and no matter how much they put the word of God in front of them and instilled the truth, something happened. I get it. Things happen. Circumstances arise completely out of our control. Maybe they have friends that lead them astray. I don't know. But I know that sometimes that happens. Why is it important for me, though, to be so concerned in those early years? Because... Even if they go astray, the hope is that eventually, just like that prodigal son, Luke 15, that they will come to their senses. They will remember because what you plan in them in those early years is always going to be there. It will be something in the worst moment of their lives will come back to their minds, remind them of what's important. Let me say this as pertains to sealing those cracks. You know, the, the text that we saw a moment ago from the Psalm, Psalm 127 verse 3, they are a heritage from the Lord, an inheritance from the Lord. Okay, those children that you have, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but those children that you have, they are going to exist for eternity. You're going to have them for so many years, and then they'll go off on their own, whatever. But that child that's coming to your home, whether that's a natural child, whether it's someone you adopted, someone you brought to be a child for you to nurture, for you to have authority over, that person right there is going to, they're going to exist forever now. 
So wouldn't it behoove us as much as is within us to do to be a great steward of the Lord and do the very best that we can to instill the truth of God in them sufficient for eternity? To me, that's a, that is a heavy, heavy commitment, responsibility that we have as a steward of God. Another thing that I think of in terms of our stewardship is our stewardship over or the commitment that we have to, say, a vocation, our job. The big picture is a passage like Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. There's, there's a similar passage over in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7. But in Colossians chapter 3, it's the idea, okay, when you, when you serve your master, when you serve someone who is in a position of authority over you, then you serve not with what he calls being a men-pleaser or, or serving with eye service, but you serve as though you are serving the Lord. Now, I love that. In fact, in verse 23... He says to do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Okay, so that takes it even a step further. Now, I'm going to serve, but in everything that I do, I'm going to do it, my service, heartily as though I am serving the Lord. It isn't even coming into my mind that I'm doing it for the man. I'm doing this for the Lord, whatever it is. Okay, that's a, that is a big picture concept. And I have to ask, now, wait a minute. Okay, can you share some details? Because, look, on a good day when the boss or whoever it is that's in authority over me, when, when that person who is in authority is having a bad day or, or they're coming down hard on me, I'm just going to tell you, it's hard for me to keep in mind I'm serving the Lord I'm now directing my attention to them, and I'm not happy about it. So how do I manage the details, the, the fallout that comes in some of these circumstances? Well, I'm thinking about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and following. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But if you do good and suffer and you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Okay, so I'm serving the Lord and not men. But this guy that I'm employed by, boy, he's pretty rough. And he has mistreated me. He's found out that I'm a Christian. He's made my life miserable. It's like, okay, well... When, when you are committed to serving Jesus and not that man, then no matter what he does, I'm still serving the Lord. So when the negative uh, comes down on me, the Lord's, the Lord's going to back me up. He's going to bless me despite what the man is doing to me because keep, I'm not serving him. I, I'm serving the Lord. Now, don't come along and say, oh no, he was mean to me. And I didn't deserve it. But you actually did deserve it because you did something wrong. I mean, maybe you are deserving of what's coming your way. I don't know. 
He says, in those cases, don't think that, don't think that you were serving the Lord because you weren't. You were serving yourself. But if you are, in fact, serving the Lord, then take, take heart in that fact. He follows up, and I like this, in chapter 4 and verse 16, where he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In other words, when I'm serving the Lord, I'm good. And I'm going to serve the Lord every step, right? Isn't that the commitment that we're making as a steward? This isn't just a part-time commitment. This is a full-time commitment. So these pieces are bringing together the idea that, okay, I'm going to walk with the Lord, and even in my vocation, I'm still committed to the Lord. It's like I'm serving Him in this work. And so in doing that, no matter what happens, I still feel my connection to the Lord. And when the negative things come, especially as I'm maintaining my Christ-likeness, even in difficult circumstances, no matter what, I'm going to receive good things as opposed to the negative or bad things that the secular person might bring to me. Okay, so there's big picture. I'm going to serve with the best I can, serving the Lord. There are the details. Sometimes it's not good, but despite that, continue serving the Lord because He's going to make it right. And then there's this. Maybe, maybe thinking through that, you're like, you know, I'm not satisfied. <laughs> I'm just thinking, really, oh, Ken, really? Why is, why is this so important that I do this? Why? Why? It, it takes me back to, well, for the Christian those who are seeking the kingdom of God, kind of the general principle that no matter what it is, whether it's the job or any other kind of socialization that we have when we're interacting with other people, I'm supposed to, no matter what, always maintain this Christ-like demeanor. Am I perfect in it? No. But am I striving for it? Yes. Because I'm trying to walk with Jesus all the time. So here's what Jesus said about that. You'll remember it in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, isn't that the real principle here? Notice what he says you are. You are the city that's set in, sitting on a hill. You are that light, that lamp we don't put under a basket. You're shining the light. What if you're the only light? You know? There's 10 Christians here. They're off somewhere. You're the only one. What now? Is Jesus' light going to shine? It is because you're going to be it. You are going to be the city on a hill. You're going to be the light that will not endure a basket. You're going to let that light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then in turn glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't you love that? Don't know if you quote-unquote, love it, but it's the reality. 
Is that heavy? Of course it is. But here's what we are. We are bought and so we are bought with a price, stewards of the Lord. And by virtue of that fact, we're going to be committed, even in our vocation. And then the last thing, the last of the five areas that we were going to talk about was the steward and his commitment to good works. Okay, here's the big picture about good works. The text I chose was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, you've been saved by grace. How is I saved by grace, the gift of God? Well, through faith. That's faithful obedience. It wasn't through any works that you did. In, in other words, you didn't do enough good works for God to say, hey, hey wait a minute. You, you don't actually even need the gift of salvation. You don't even need the blood of Jesus. You're good because you've done so many good things. That's, that's not it. He says, not one of those good works is going to save you. You have been saved by God's grace, His gift of salvation, in response to your faithful obedience. But now that I am saved, He says, He has saved you to be a good worker. <laughs> for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So He worked to make you, and then you in turn are going to do good works. Okay, that's the big picture. I'm committed as a steward of Jesus Christ to do good works. But, you know, can you bring that down a little bit? Give me some details. The book of Ecclesiastes, another one of those wise books. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10 says that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Now, right there is another great wise statement. You know when it is that you should be doing your good works? Should I be waiting procrastinating. I'll be planning, 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 planning. Lord, hold on. I'm planning it. Wait on me. I'm planning. Wait, I'm planning. Boom, I'm dead. <laughs> well, if you waited on your planning until you died, guess what? Work's not getting done. Who was the responsible one to do the work? Well, it was you. You're his workmanship creating Christ Jesus for good works. When should I get busy doing them? It's now. It's right now. He says when you die, you're not going to be doing any works. There is no device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Once you die, it's too late. So as we are living right now, we ought to be busy doing these good works to the glory of God. What was it Jesus said about disciples in Luke chapter 9 verse 23? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. I love that. It is a daily sacrifice that we are making. 
Does that ring any bells? Romans chapter 12, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I'm just begging you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do the will of God. Wait a minute, what do I do? Well, respond to what's happened in this change of mind of yours. Hasn't that accomplished anything with us? I hear some people say things like, boy, you know, Ken, when I came up out of that, that watery grave of baptism, I just felt like a new person. Okay, great. Act like a new person. And not just, you know, it's kind of like, I remember when I, when I was baptized, my brother was um, younger than me, and he came up to me, and he's just so encouraging. He said, Kenny, man, I'm, I'm just so happy for you. I'm going to do my best to see that you sin uh, as soon as possible. And I, I was like, wait, what? I just wanted to shout to him, get behind me, Satan. You know, this is my brother. He wants to see me stumble right away. And I'll just tell you, he did his best. Well, when we come up out of that water and grave, we say, a change has occurred with me. I'm a different person. Then great, be a different person. Not just, oh, I feel good because my sins have been forgiven, but this is my fresh start. And now I've been, I've been equipped as this workmanship of God. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to do good works. Among other reasons is the one that we're thinking about tonight. And that is, well, I'm a steward. You know, I have, I have things now that God has invested in me. Initially, it was that calling. But now as I've gone along, it's also become, you know, the opportunities. It's become the knowledge. It's become the abilities and the resources and every other blessing that God put in my hands. Why does that matter? Why is that important? I was thinking about Matthew 7 and verse 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, it isn't just what we say we're going to do. Or doing something in the Lord's name that he never asked us to do. It's being a steward who is committed to doing those good works. To doing what God has identified as the good works. Are there a lot of good things to do? Yes. But if I'm a steward of the Lord, I'm committed to his way of doing things. Jesus illustrates that also in this text with a beautiful story that many of our children learn. Jesus said that those who hear these things of mine and do them, that person will be like a man who built his house on a rock. Rains descended, floods came, winds blew, and beat on that house, and it stood because it was founded on the rock. But those who hear these things of mine and do not do them 
will, will be like a man who built his house on sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. You and I, we are stewards of the Lord. We're stewards, according to our text, of the mysteries of God. God's put a lot of things in our hands. We possess them. We've taken possession, but we don't own them. We're using them to His honor and His glory. We are doing something. So we're committed to God in that. We're committed to a spouse if we have one. We're committed to our children if we have them. We are committed to a vocation. We are committed to good works. God's expecting the things that He's committed to us as stewards that we're going to manage them in a way that will please Him. So much of the purpose of what we'll be discussing in these several weeks is just that. How, how can I be successful as a steward of the things of God? Next week, we will look at the idea of being a steward of the manifold grace of God. I look forward to that study with you. Let's pray together, and then we'll be finished. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing, privilege of being able to study together. And we pray, Lord, that you'll make these things useful in us. Help us, help us to be good stewards of all the things you've put into our hands. Forgive us, Lord, if in the past we've been dilatory in that. But help us to learn better and then to do better. Thank you for all that the scriptures do to emphasize the importance of these things. Help us just to dig them out, being, be instructed, and then put them into practice. Thank you for all that you're going to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.